Good morning. How are you doing? Another beautiful sunny day. Amen. Praise God for where we live. Boy, I tell you, don't take it for granted ever. It is the last day in Acts. You know, I... Is it Barbara Streisand? I'm a bit verklempt. Yeah. Not many of you got that. That's okay. I know how incredibly sad it is. Feel free to shed tears. Biblically, you can feel free to gnash teeth, whatever that means. So on this last day in Acts, would you please, one more time, for old time's sake, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter... Where are we? Yeah, you might think chapter 28, since that's the last chapter, but actually, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 this morning. Ha <laughs> ha, you've no idea. I'm serious, Acts chapter 1, you've no idea how long I've been waiting to say that. Like, oh no, he's starting over. What's with this guy in Acts? Anyway, I checked this week, I checked this week, I think the first sermon on Acts was September 2006. Can you believe it? Don't answer. Yes, we can believe that. Oh, come on. Doesn't time fly when we're having fun? In God's Word. As the angel said to Paul, do not be afraid. You will not perish. I'm not starting over. But um, we're going to end our study of Acts with a message. A message that I would give if I only had one sermon to give on the book of Acts. Now, some of you are thinking, why didn't you just do that in the first place? Well, for one, we really, and I really believe this, we really weren't ready for this message yet. We needed first to toil along with Peter and Paul and through these amazing first 30 years of the early church. We needed to do that in order to prepare for the message today. So it's been a two-week prep almost for, for one message that God's put on my heart. My prayer this week all week long has been that we have indeed been given ears this morning in particular to hear what God has placed on my heart at least to share today. And so the message this morning covers the entire book of Acts. Actually, or actually, haha. <laughs> hope it gets better. <laughs> Actually, when I think about it, the message this morning covers the entire book of the Bible from generation, uh, Genesis through Revelation. Um, many of you may recall that at about the halfway point through our series in Acts, we stepped back. We stepped back from examining the individual trees of Acts to take a look at the whole forest. We took out our, our wide-angled lens to check our bearings before we continued our march verse by verse through this amazing book. And so too this morning, as we finish the book of Acts, I'd like again with you to take a few steps back. In fact, way back. Almost as far as we can possibly step. To see where we've come and where it is we must continue to go as Christians and in our life and witness as followers of Jesus. From the beginning of our series I hinted at an overarching theme in Acts. Those of you who were here last weekend to hear Ray Vanderlaan heard him echo the same theme. As we began our trek through Acts, I suggested to you 
that Acts is about bringing the kingdom of God to the world. Does that sound familiar? It should after two years. And so we return to that again. And not for the last time, I'm sure. For you see, this kingdom of God theme is central not only to Acts, but indeed to the Bible and our continued role as followers of Jesus. It is, in my opinion, the foundational core reason why Luke wrote letters to his friend Theophilus. Luke's first letter we call the Gospel of Luke, where Luke leads with the story of an angel telling Zechariah that his son John the Baptist would prepare the way of the Lord. In Luke's second letter to Theophilus, what we call the book of Acts, where Luke leads with the story of Jesus speaking to them about the kingdom of God. You see, first century writers, including those who wrote the New Testament, often use a literary device called an inclusio. Say inclusio. An inclusio is simply a fancy word for sandwich. Okay? First century writers would often begin and end in a similar way in order to make their main point. So you could say that the beginning is one slice of bread, and then the ending is the other slice of bread, And then everything in between those two slices is related somehow to the slices of bread sandwiched between them. Related to the beginning and the end. Well, Luke, our first century writer, a first century writer is no exception. Your Bibles are open to Acts 1. Let's see see if we can identify Luke's beginning and then ending slices of bread. His inclusio. What's Luke about in writing this long letter of Acts? Luke begins his letter this way, Acts 1, 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about that what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And oh, there it is. One slice of bread. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. And if you drop down in your Bibles a couple of verses, you see the disciples asking Jesus, Lord, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And in short, Jesus answers, yes, but not in a way you expect. So let's assume for the moment the kingdom of God is indeed the slice of bread that Luke lays down as his main theme in Acts chapter 1. And if that's so, since we're talking about an inclusio going on, then we should find at the end of Acts the other slice. Let's see. Turn with me to Acts chapter 28. We've yet to read the final story of Paul in Rome, so let's do it now. I'll begin reading at verse 17, Acts chapter 28. Three days later, that is three days after Paul gets to Rome, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. It's another Jesus-Paul comparison going on here. It's Luke's same phrase, handed over, that he used when Jesus was handed over in his gospel. 
They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. Pilate wanted to release Jesus too, remember? The Jews objected, so I was compelled, I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I am asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that that hope of Israel was the hope of the resurrection. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. Now, that's a bit of a surprise. It might tell us, it might signal that, yes, there was intense opposition to Paul in Jerusalem, but maybe the numbers were few and powerful. For whatever reason, this hasn't leaked to the Jewish leaders in Rome about Paul. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Christianity, still considered a sect of growing out of Judaism, a sect of Jewish belief in God and hope in Messiah. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, I'm not the only long-winded teacher, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation, great play on words here, to say God's salvation in Hebrew at least is Yeshua. It's Jesus' name, God's salvation. I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And here it is. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. Paul, at the end, is speaking about the kingdom of God. What a coincidence that Luke begins and ends. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. We've got both slices of, of this Lucan sandwich. This overarching kingdom of God theme in Acts. And so, the inclusio is going on with those sandwich slices of kingdom of God. The meat of the sandwich is what, God, is what Luke puts in between all of Acts. As the proclamation of the kingdom of God goes out into the world, here's how we can talk about what's in between. First into Israel with Peter, and then into the world with Paul. 
The kingdom of God confronts the kingdoms of this world. And it's that clash of titans. The clash of the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world that acts. And my friends, the Bible is all about ever since they first clashed in Genesis 3 when a kingdom of this world snake came against two citizens of the kingdom of God and whispered, oh, come on, do it your way, not God's way. Go ahead. See, we often make the mistake of reducing God's Word to theology. Theology is important. Please hear that. But God's Word is about so much more than thumbing it up into tight, nifty theological categories and truth statements, which is really what theology does. It summarizes God's Word. Now, that is a helpful tool. Believe me. But as helpful a tool as it can be, theology is indeed only a tool. It's a means and not an ends. And we ought to remember that when we're tempted to make theological war against fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. See, this clash of titans in Acts between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world is not, first and foremost, a clash of theology or even religion. When Paul states that the reason he's in chains is because of the hope of Israel, the resurrection, it is not about the theology of the resurrection and whether or not God could do that. Rather, it's about everything. God and His Word and life itself. How so? Because if the resurrection of the dead is true, that changes everything. And the reason that Jesus and Peter and Paul and us too often have such a hard go of it in our witness is not because of theology. It's because those who would rather follow the kingdoms of this world than the kingdom of God do all they can to stop the gospel, to stop that new world of resurrection of the dead from being fully realized because it threatens their power and control. Let me try and unpack that a bit by skimming through Acts with you. The book of Acts is easily divided into two parts. The first part emphasizes that Jesus is the true King of Israel, Israel's Messiah. It's in the first 12 chapters of Acts. And in Acts 4, for example, the chief priests are furious that the disciples are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because the chief priests are theological liberals who don't believe in the resurrection? Hardly. No, the reason they're furious is because they know very well that if the resurrection is true, then everything is turned upside down. Because if the resurrection is true, then God is creating a new world with a new kind of justice rather than the kind that these chief priests and other leaders can manipulate for their own gain. And they're threatened by the resurrection because it means a world where the poor get their rights at last and the rich are sent away empty. And they fight it. 
The chief priests and many with them are angry because their profitable system of temple and Mosaic law seems to have been upstaged by Jesus and the Holy Spirit coming as the new place of meeting between God and His people. And it's precisely for that reason they are filled with rage and Stephen is stoned. And this first part of Acts ends with Herod Agrippa who kills James and then tries to kill Peter when faced with the claim that Jesus is Messiah. And when a few days later Herod accepts praise as a god rather than giving God the credit, he's struck down dead. More on that in a minute. The second part of Acts, chapters 13 to the end, emphasizes that Jesus is the true Lord of the world. And so off Paul goes into the world. He runs into trouble with both his fellow Jews and Gentiles. And again, not really for theological reasons. Instead, the resistance that Paul faces is because of the economic, political, social impact that the kingdom of God demands. In Philippi, for example, you remember, Paul gets in trouble when he casts a demon from a slave girl, not over a disagreement about a theology of exorcism. But why? Why does he get in trouble? Do you remember? Yeah, he gets in trouble because the slave girl's owners can no longer exploit her for money. So it's an economic clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And considering the girl's a slave, it's a social confrontation here as well. In the kingdom of God, you can't exploit a slave girl for money. In Thessalonica, Paul's opponents complain Paul is turning the world upside down by acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. You think? Because Paul is saying there's another king named Jesus. Well, exactly. That's a political confrontation. Later, the Athenians mock Paul's insistence on the resurrection of the dead because they know if that's true, it means a whole new world than what Athens stood for. And in Ephesus, the famous riot against Paul is started by a group of silversmiths whose business of selling little Artemis statues is being threatened. There's another economic confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. Money comes up a lot as a rival to the kingdom of God. Maybe that's why Jesus talked about money so much. Number one topic of His, in fact. Did you know? See, when the kingdom of God confronts the kingdoms of the world, sparks fly. Because the kingdoms of this world do not want to give up their systems of power and money and exploitation of the weak. And all these sparks fly in the first century because Peter and Paul, and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, go tearing out there together with the earliest Christians. They dared to do what Jesus did. They dared to go around and tell the kingdoms of this world that Jesus is Lord and not them. One of the first sermons I gave you, some of you still remember it. I'll have to give it again. <laughs> You liked it. Remember when I talked about the importance of going around with your finger in the air so people don't look at you, but they look at God. Remember? Everybody still got your fingers? When's the last time you've done it? Go ahead. Put, your finger, put the right finger in the air. Okay, there you go. Fingers in the air pointing to God. Okay. You know what? 
every once in a while, and you've got to be very careful when you do this because you want to do it in love, but every, day, every once in a while there comes a time where that finger's not only in the air, but that finger is in the face of the kingdoms of this world telling them that Jesus is Lord and they're not. And often I think in the name of tolerance, we never want to go there. And I understand that we need to be respectful and loving and serving and all the rest. But you've got to be careful, my brothers and sisters. Tolerance too far can just be a fancy word for cowardice. They dared to go and tell the kings of the world, Jesus is Lord, not them. So get your boot off the neck of the poor. They dared to. And if you want a single theme of Acts, a single theme of this massive work, that's it in my opinion. Acts is about Jesus is Lord. And whenever that gets out there, there's a reckoning. There's a reckoning that happens or is going to happen for those kingdoms of the world who reject the kingdom of God and Jesus is Lord and King. Look again at Acts 1. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. Then He ascended. Remember the very first story? To a Jew, the ascension brings into focus the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man exalted to the right hand of the Ancient of Days as Lord and King. To a Gentile in the Roman world, the ascension speaks to the fact that Jesus is divine. To both, it speaks Jesus is Lord. And did you catch the very first line of the book of Acts? Luke says he is writing about what Jesus began to do. Now, when I first read that and noticed that, it took me by surprise. What Jesus began to do, I would have expected Luke to say he's writing to Theophilus about what Jesus did. Not what he began to do. What did Jesus begin to do? He began in earnest to confront the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God where He, Jesus, is Lord. And what Jesus began to do, Paul continued to do. Luke's last statement of Paul is that Paul continued to proclaim the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God where Jesus is Lord. And that, my friends, is our task too to proclaim to the kingdoms of the world that they must give way to the kingdoms of God. The kingdom of God. And kingdom of God where Jesus is Lord. Proclaim to those who think they are Lord that Jesus is in fact Lord. Now, P.S. The kingdoms of this world are not only countries and governments or what we tend to think are kingdoms. They're included. But the kingdoms of this world is anything that wants to take on itself something of significance or importance. Anything that says, you know what? That's not the answer for your life and how to live. I am. Things like, and let's throw it out there, sexual immorality, pornography. Oh, quiet. Let me tell you, I spent time with kids in high school. Our country, our culture, our kids, in the church, out the church, they are being attacked by a swarming mass of the kingdom of this world of sexual immorality. And they're buckling 
And we need to take our finger as Christians and stick it in the face of sexual immorality and say, you know what? You're not the answer. Sexual pleasure is not the answer to do in any way you see fit because it feels good. You are not Lord. Jesus is. And He says, save it for marriage. <laughs> Kingdom of this world of idolatry. Kingdom of power at the expense of others. Kingdom of violence or might makes right. All sorts of things that claim to be the way to live but are contrary to what the Kingdom of God says how to live. First and foremost, primarily by uplifting the weak and caring for them in self-sacrificial love. Others at the expense of self. That's the fundamental constitutional tenet of the Kingdom of God. And the Kingdom of God is wherever or whenever something is as God intended. Wherever the will of God is being done. The Lord's Prayer gets it right. O Lord, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom comes. Whenever you give a hungry child food, you brought the kingdom of God. And the kingdom comes whenever you comfort someone who's hurting. And the kingdom comes whenever you tell them about Jesus. And the kingdom comes when you give someone, a homeless person, a blanket because they're cold. And the kingdom comes when you push and you strive against any social injustice where the weak is exploited at, the, at their expense and the rich stand on their necks. Let me tell you, there's hope in all of this spark-flying confrontation between kingdoms. There's always hope with God. <laughs> And Luke gives it to us in dramatic fashion. Look at the last couple of words of his entire letter. He uses, he ends the book of Acts. And it's only one word in the original Greek. Akolutos. Let's say akolutos. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament. And it's translated unhindered or without hindrance. When we proclaim the kingdom of God, when we take the kingdom of God and make things as they should be, when we proclaim Jesus is Lord to the powers that be, nothing can stop that thundering truth. Herod Agrippa tried to get in the way, and he got buried, literally. For his trouble, he was struck down dead and eaten by worms. And just look at the very next line in Luke's account after Herod dies. But the Word of God continued to increase and spread. Yes, that's Luke's point. Nothing can stop it, not even Agrippa. That's Herod at the end of part one of Acts. What about Caesar at the end of part two? Well, most agree that the Caesar that Paul confronted with the kingdom of God was Nero. Nero, who blamed and murdered Christians for burning Rome even when they didn't. Nero, who murdered his own mother. He actually rigged a shipwreck so she would drown. But she managed to float ashore, so he killed her anyway and made it look like a suicide. Same Nero who, who actually kicked one of his wives to death because she complained he was late coming home one night from the races. He's a really nice guy. Now, Acts doesn't give us an account of Paul's trial before Nero. 
And we don't know for sure what happened to Paul as a result. Best guess from as early as 2nd century sources and later is that Nero beheaded Paul. And oh yeah, Nero's also the guy who had Peter crucified upside down. Our best guess anyway. Wow. The same guy took out Peter and Paul. Hate to be Nero on Judgment Day. Sorry, I know, but for the grace of God, it, it, it might have been me. But wow. You know, so, Nero, let's take a look at your life. It says here you murdered Peter and Paul. Anyway, I'll get email on that, I know. <laughs> Sorry I said it. Not really. Anyway. So how can Luke possibly write that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God akalutos, without hindrance? Is this some kind of weird joke? Nero killed him. Sounds kind of like a hindrance to me. Two things. First, very soon after Nero kills Paul, Nero kills himself after a military coup chases him from power. And Rome itself is thrown into chaos. For you history buffs, Rome has its infamous year of the four emperors. It was a political mess. And several historians point to it as the earliest crack, at least, in the very foundation of the empire altogether. Second, got one question. Where's Rome today? Gone. Have you noticed? See, time doesn't phase the one called Ancient of Days. And have you also noticed, where's the kingdom of God that Paul preached? The gospel of Jesus is Lord. Well, it's sitting right here today because he did it. It continued without hindrance and it will until he comes again, despite what any kingdom of the world tries to throw in its way. And many have wondered, now many have wondered why, why Luke didn't write of Paul's death. Right? People have guessed, there's guesses out there, well, maybe Luke died before he could finish his story. Maybe Luke intended to write a third letter to Theophilus, beginning with, you know, Paul leaving this earth even as he began Acts with Jesus' ascension. Others have guessed that, that Luke finished his letter before Paul's final trial and death. All possibilities. Personally, I lean in a different direction. I'm not sure. No one is. We'll all ask Luke one day. And if I'm right, I say, I'll say, I told you so. Just kidding. That would be a sin. So, yeah. But I have a feeling, I've got a feeling Luke finished his account full well knowing what happened to Paul. And he purposely left Paul's death out of the story. Why? To emphasize that even death is no hindrance to the proclamation and the coming of the kingdom of God. Even death can't get in the way of Jesus is Lord. I'll let, uh, I'll let N.T. Wright close us this morning. Reverend Dr. Wright was, was addressing a group in the Anglican Church. And it's our very good fortune this morning that he was talking about the book of Acts. And that someone got a copy of his lecture notes. Dr. Wright says it this way. And this is part of the point of Acts as a whole. That whatever troubles the church may get itself into, 
whatever divisions and persecutions and disputes there may be, we must end up, whether in Rome in the first century or in Edinburgh or Littleton or Denver this next weekend, we must end up saying to the powers of the world that Jesus is Lord and they are not. This is our primary calling, Dr. Wright writes. It is for this task, not in order to wallow in our own spiritual experiences. Ouch! That the church must pray for the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. And then he adds this, Never, never forget in the days to come, the reason you go through the storm. The reason it's stormy out there is you are carrying the gospel of God's kingdom to let the powers of the world know that Jesus is their rightful King and Lord. Let this be Luke's message, Dr. Wright says. Let, it be, let his message be God's nerve. I love that. Ride out the storm so that you too can stand before the powers, announce God's kingdom, and proclaim Jesus as Lord with all boldness, and unhindered, so help you God. Amen? <laughs> Praise God. I... We, live in, we live in a culture and in a time and in a place, and I feel it every day. Maybe you do too. We are so overwhelmed with and focused on self and getting stuff and how can I get ahead and when's the next thing that I'm going to buy? And where am I going to go on vacation? And what am I going to do with all of my free time? And how can I build up my kingdom and power? And how can I get that promotion? And how can I, you know, do this with my kids? And how... It's the American dream. Prosperity. Let me tell you, the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's at hand here in this room in you. We are the kingdom of God to this world. And we, when we compromise with it, it's up to us bring a kingdom of God into the world. And I'll tell you, first and foremost, bringing, it, bringing the kingdom of God into the world, at least in our time, in our culture, in our place, is to bring help and care for those who suffer and the poor, in my strong opinion. And to let go of wanting it for me. God is love. John said. We're to love God with all of every part of us, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our mind. So I say, how God, how, on, how is it? Yes, we do love you. How is it that you would like us to love you? Just with warm, fuzzy feeling thoughts as we wallow on Sunday mornings? Oh, I love you. He tells us by getting the second commandment, which is like it. He says, you want to love me? Oh, I can see that you do. I love hearing the songs and the Word and what you do here in church in the morning. Whoa, that makes me feel great. But even as we're sitting here, 
He's also weeping because someone's dying from hunger somewhere. And He says to us, church of God, you want to love Me? Then love them! That's the kingdom of God. Will you dare to go what Jesus and Peter and Paul did and do and did? (laughs) You dare to go out to the kingdoms of the world, whatever it is, and say, you know what? You're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. If you do, let me tell you what. Even if it costs you your life, and it may, that word will last forever and ever and ever. It will be unhindered. God promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes even our praise and worship and experience of you can be selfish. Please forgive us. Father, help us to go with boldness like the Apostle Paul did into the face of the storm and into the world unashamed and intentionally proclaiming and living and showing with love that Jesus is Lord and not anybody else or any other system. Would you give us the courage and the strength and the selflessness to get over that hump and to love you by loving others literally into the kingdom of God. We love you and we ask all of this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Shalom. Go in peace. Praise God.